Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. We know in education that mathematics is the most important subject in the curriculum. We're talking today with one of the very, very best. We're talking with Conrad Wolfram from Wolfram Research. He's a maths teacher, he is a director, he is an entrepreneur, he is just an absolute game changer when it comes to the way in which we understand teaching, learning, mathematics. Conrad Wolfram, let's go. Phil, it's wonderful to be with you as well. I hope things are going well there in Hips the Fitzroy. Uh, look, you know, it's, it's all, all of the almond lattes uh, are going down very well in a physically distanced fashion. Thank you, Adriana. Well, we're going we're to move straight into it, Conrad. And the first question I have for you is, is the pretty straightforward one that we've asked all of our guests so far on Series 1 and now Series 2. And that is, just tell us a little bit about your story, about what has brought you to where you are today. So... I guess when I was at school, I found math and science. I did better at them than I did at French. So that tended to push me forwards uh, to prefer to do those subjects. And then I got kind of interested, particularly in science and math. And then my brother started uh, Wolfram back in uh, 88, just as I was graduating from school. And so then I ended up joining that and becoming its strategic director, running the European part and so forth. And so I got very interested in how computation drives the world forward. And so for the last 30 or so years, we've been sort of observing and driving both the world, you know, to use more calculation, more mathematics. And this has worked tremendously well, both from us and from other organizations. You know, the world is so incredibly computational mathematical now. Uh, and then we saw, then I started seeing 10 or 15 years ago, gosh, the place this really hasn't moved forward is schools. You know, the mathematics of schools looks pretty much the same as it did 20, 30, 40, 50, even 100 years ago in many respects. I mean, certain things have changed. And so I started really thinking, this doesn't make any sense. And I'm in almost the ideal place to see this because I've seen the outside world. I know what the technology is. We have millions of people we interact with who are maths people. Uh, either hiring them or, uh, you know, producing uh, software for them or working with them or using mathematics ourselves. So if, if I don't do something about this, it's like, who else is going to? So that's really, in a sense, a very potted story of, uh, of how I've come to be engaged in a fundamental reform of maths education. We're going to, we're going to get to uh, your work in that particular space very soon. And Phil's got a, a question, particularly around more practical and more conceptual kind of mathematics going forward. But I have a, a pretty straightforward question and it's just about learning itself. How do you define learning? How do I define learning? Well, I mean, let me answer a slightly different question. How do I, what do I think the point of education is? Okay. Which is perhaps even more zoomed out than how do I define learning? I mean, yeah, this has been debated through history, right? In, in many respects, I, I suppose my simplest 
you know, quick description is uh, to enrich life. That's the point of education and in all ways. I mean, I don't, you know, partly enriches in like, can you earn money and get a, you know, support yourself and have a good life in that way, but not just in making money in, you know, how you actually enrich your being, how you learn how to function well, how to have a, so to speak, good life, etc. So I think in the most general sense, that's what education is, uh, is for. And, uh, and, you know, that's both individual and societal, right? Because it, it's like part of being, particularly now, we've got so many humans on the planet, right? You, you need to interact with other humans in a good way. And if you don't cohesively uh, set that up, all sorts of problems, you know, you get wars and you get unhappiness and all sorts of ways. So it's, it's, it, you, you've got to engender some societal well-being as well as individual. Uh, you know, how is learning related to that? I mean, I think we need to think of learning much more generally than going to a classroom in a school. That's part of learning. I think we also need to think much more generally than the curriculum. You know, I learned a whole lot of stuff at school, nothing to do with the curriculum, how my teachers behaved on certain things, you know, whether they got annoyed or didn't get annoyed, you know, how I, did I wind them up or didn't wind them up? You know, what were their characters? How did other kids behave? So, and of course, from my parents and from other adults and so forth. So I think we've got to think of learning as a way in which you're accelerating experience. And it's a sense, what you're trying to do is, is get that experience built in as quickly as possible in all walks of, in all areas, whether it's the curriculum or whether it's outside, in order to, in order to be able to not make the mistakes other people have made and to make a better job of life. So if we take that as a notion, and, 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 and I think we'd heartily concur in our, in our first series of The Game Changers, we ended by talking of the challenge of the tail wagging the dog, the stuff of education the individual components having a greater influence on what happens on a daily basis than the point of it. So in other words, the curriculum, the exams, the tests, the performances, the, the individual pieces, which are disembodied and dis, uh, decontextualized and they come to take on a meaning of their own rather than forming human beings and looking to the character and competencies, which will allow them to live a life where they can thrive. Let's zoom in then to mathematics itself. And you've previously stated that maths is fundamentally a different process in education than it is in the real world. And, and, and you know, again, as a history teacher, I, 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 to myself, I quite often will, will contrast the difference between learning to be an historian and doing history. So can you share with our yeah. listeners your work around doing maths teaching differently, doing mathematics differently, yeah. more practical and more conceptual and less mechanical. Yeah, sure. So here's the fundamental difference between maths, and it's often not called maths, but call it maths for the moment in the real world and maths in education. You know, in the real world, almost all the calculating is done by machine these days. So what you're doing is you're running a process. We come back to what that is, but we're running a process that solves problems well. The point of mathematics in the end is to solve problems. It's a, one of the world's most incredible problem-solving systems. In education, we've got hooked on the bit of that process that is hand calculating. Now, you can see how this happened. You know, decades ago, the only way to run the process was if you could calculate it, if you could do the calculating step yourself by hand there were no machines to do it and so therefore if 
if you couldn't calculate by hand, you couldn't run the process. So that was the thing you had to focus on all the time. Otherwise, no point in learning anything about the process. Nowadays, that's been completely turned on its head in the real world. Computers do the calculating almost entirely. So what we got to get uh, our students to do is know how to run the process with far more complicated problems using computers in order that they can solve much more realistic problems, problems that are actually going to solve in their life, problems that are much more empowering to them. Now, a couple more things to say on this. So what is the process? We talk about it as a four-step process. The first step is you're defining the problem. So it's like, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? And often when I'm giving a talk, I, I say, you know, suppose we bolted the whole room down, sealed it, and I went on talking for too long. How long would we survive in this room, right? That's the sort of problem. You, you know, it's a, the next step is what we call abstraction. You want to turn the problem from English to math speak. Now, why do you want to do that? You want to do that because the math speak enables you to solve all sorts of disparate problems, get answers which you could never get so clearly in English. And we've got a whole tool set built over hundreds, even thousands of years to enable us to do it. So that what you're doing is setting up the question. You know, you might set up an equation. That's a thing you'd probably learn at school. The next step is you compute. And what you do when you compute is you take the question in abstract form and you move it to the answer in abstract form. So let's say you had an equation. You might end up with x equals 3 as the answer from step 3. Step four you're interpreting. You're saying, okay, I got x equals three. Let's go back to my original problem. How long am I gonna survive in the room? Maybe that was three hours. Now I have to go back. Did that make any sense? If it was minus three, it probably had a problem in my calculation or my setup. Let's go back and figure out whether that really represented the problem and maybe go and change how we do it and run the process again. So that's the process. Step three, the calculating, is what has gone completely off track in schools. We spend 80% of our time doing step three by hand and only maybe 20% doing the other steps. And we're doing them with much more trivial problems than we should do, which, which actually is less interesting to the kids and often more difficult in a funny way because it doesn't meet the real world. They just don't know why they're dealing with snooker balls or whatever they're, they're engaged with. And so uh, what we need to do is reverse that, turn on its head, take the real tools from outside computers, get them doing the calculating, setting up harder problems, abstracting harder problems, defining more realistic problems, knowing how to interpret them. And they might be history problems, they might be geography problems, they might be art problems. They're not problems of mathematics itself. They're, they're to solve problems we have in life, which are in all of those domains. And, uh, and in a sense, that's what's completely gone off track. The subject, not so much the teaching, but the subject itself. So there's a process of mathematics in which mathematics becomes the servant of life, not yep. a thing in itself, which one part of it is abstracted to the point of a lack of meaning. I, I want to I pose to you something that comes out of that, if I can, Conrad, which actually came from experience working with uh, uh, one of our client schools uh, in your part of the world, in fact, not too far from where you are right now in, uh, in, in the south of England. Um, we're talking with a very well-intentioned, very knowledgeable, very scholarly and experienced head of department who, when asked the question, what is the point of mathematics, responded to teach children that there are things in life that never change, that there are immutable laws. So this is a person coming from a perspective 
that maths is a bullock against change rather than the servant of change in society. I'm, and I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb now and say, I have these conversations more often with maths, physics and chemistry teachers than any other type of teacher, of people who are very well-intentioned, but who believe in all earnestness that it's not necessary to change their approach because they know what they're doing and it hasn't changed since Euclid. How do we help these folk to understand? That okay, it's a really good question. And gosh, there are lots of different bits I could bite at there. Okay, so uh, you could have asked a classics teacher about Latin in the 1950s, and they would have said the same thing. And Latin was, in Britain anyway, was a pretty central part of all intellectual schooling. And people thought it was you know, the central thing. If you didn't, it was immutable. If kind of, if you didn't learn a you know, good Latin word, you didn't learn Latin, uh, it's kind of like you were a dunce. Uh, except now it's dead as a mainstream subject. I mean, you know, a few private schools teach it and you can argue it's good or bad, but the fact of the matter is it's not mainstream right now. Maths is gonna go the same way if we don't make the changes I'm talking about. And here's, here's, what's, here's what goes wrong here. So you need to distinguish between mainstream subjects and subjects that are interesting to a, to a group of people. Now, my view of education is, and mainstream versus you know, uh, sort of optional subjects is this. If you're gonna have a subject you're gonna enforce on everyone, you have gotta be pretty damn sure there's a good rational set of reasons why that's gonna help enrich their life. So I think there are good reasons, for example, to argue for history, if it's the right kind of history, there are good reasons to argue for your own language. Are there also good reasons to argue for maths or let's call it computational thinking? So let's, let's take the name out of the problem right now. Let's not worry about what's the subject we've got now, whether it's named that way, but call it computational thinking for, uh, for the moment. I'm going to argue there is a great reason to have a mainstream subject like that. It is important for our society. There are things that it can really enrich for everyone, but it's gotta be the right subject that matches the real world in, this, in the way I was just talking about. Now, what's gone wrong? We've got te some teachers who are great teachers who are excited by maths. They went into math because they enjoy it as, as a subject in its own right. That's wonderful. We have a small number of students who enjoy it in its own right. They're interested in maths because it's maths, just like we have historians who are interested in history for its own right, for its own sake. That's wonderful, but that's not the mainstream subject. So if you're going to define a mainstream subject for everyone, we've got to be clear, it's got to be the, the thing that enriches most people. So I'm, not, I, I'm absolutely for a pure math subject that follows Euclid in all sorts of ways, you know, <laughs> which is interesting for you know people get engaged themselves in it and some students want to take it i'm also very keen on latin in the same way but dip, but i wouldn't force everyone to do latin if they get excited by latin if they and maybe push people do it get people to try get students to try lots of different subjects even if they don't seem important for a job and see whether they take on those subjects I, that's wonderful but don't force them to do it for 10 years of their life and i think that's where we've gone wrong now what one term i sometimes use to go back to the previous issue about sort of what is it you need to learn with respect to this subject. I think one needs to be clear about what the essence of a subject is and what its mechanics of the moment is. So I often give the example of photography. I sometimes like taking pictures. Now, when I was, you know, 
a kid doing this, I had to use film and I had to know how to load the film into the camera and you know, all the things you did with a the camera then. Nowadays, I don't need to know that. But I often joke if photography was a mainstream subject today at school, the first lesson would start with how you load a film into a camera. Now, that was the mechanics of a previous moment. That, was, that wasn't the essence of photography, in my view. The essence of photography, let's say still photography, is you know, making a record of the, of the world in a way that you think is interesting, let's say. You can argue about its essence, but it's something around that. It isn't loading films into cameras. But you do need to know something about today's mechanics of the moment in order to execute that's that's topic. So, you know, today I need to know something about how my camera works to do it, but it isn't that. So what we need to allow in education is we need to keep clear on the essence and the outcomes that we really want to achieve. And we need to allow the mechanics of the moment to shift with technology and with changes in what's required in the outside world. And that's a process that has not worked very well in general across the world in, in educational. So Conrad, I, I, I accept your premise that computers do the calculating to allow the people then to transform the world. And, and I accept the fact that there is so much data and information that is at the touch of our fingers these days around the rise of automation and the rise of artificial intelligence. And anyone that keeps ignoring the fact that those constructs and robots are going to continue to dominate any kind of mechanical uh, occupation uh, it's got head in the sand type of thinking going on. So I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm thinking about when I was in year 10 mathematics here in Australia, I was in the advanced maths class and I despised every minute of it because the reward for me actually completing my work on time and doing it efficiently based on what was set for me was now to do the right-hand column of the textbook. You know, I started with the left and my reward was to do the right-hand column. It was just a lot of busy work. And never once did my maths teacher ever explain to me the purpose of what I was doing. And that's what you're talking about here, that you're talking about a values proposition around its essence and what, how it's going to enhance my life, my domestic life, and of course, enhance that of others that I encounter and so on. So what has to then change at a university level around our teacher training to better prepare them for this new world that we are currently living in? The real thing that's got to change is the curricula. In the end, the only way to fix this, you know, en masse, across everything, is to have the curriculum, curricula with the right subject. So, I mean, one of the problems we've got right now, you know, we can have a great math teacher, but in the end, they're forced to teach this curriculum of hand calculating. And however great they are as a math teacher, there isn't that much purpose to some of it. I mean, let's be honest, many of the techniques that people are learning today aren't relevant. They don't get used in the real world because techniques that are computer-based and are different, therefore, do get used. So take machine learning, a very common technique of modern world of artificial intelligence. It works. I mean, nobody learns anything about machine learning in their math education, right? Because it's too new and it only works with computers. That's a tool in your tool set that you need to know about. Now, in the end, <laughs> you need machine learning for certain kinds of problems that you want to solve. That's the way you'd go about solving. There are many other techniques as well you might use, but many of those also, you know, data science techniques nowadays need mass computation. So you can't therefore learn the right techniques without a computer, and the teachers can't teach the right techniques, in a sense, without, without having a curriculum they're teaching to that allows that to happen. So not to be too negative on what teachers can do, but you, there's a point at which governments, people setting curricula, have got to step back and change the curriculum. 
and that's a long process, you know, and that's tethered to exams, of course, because the exams test what the curriculum is supposed to do and they drive what teachers are supposed to teach most of the time. What can teachers do? What can we train, train, change about our teacher training? Well, I do think that the more teachers understand why they're teaching, the more they look at outcomes, the more they have real problems to go through, and the more we give them interactive materials that allow that to happen, it gives them a, a sort of edifice around which they can then insert even the current curriculum. And that's really, really helpful. So I think what needs to happen uh, is we need to take problems from other walks of life. And so we've started naming things like computational history, computational biology. These are names of subjects, parts of subjects. But you need to think about every subject is computational potentially. How can computation help me further my history studies, further my linguistic studies, not only further my math studies? And we need to get teachers thinking that point of view. So one of the things we've been doing is in the computer-based maths project that, uh, that I'm running, uh, we've been building modules, which are essentially electronic materials that start with a problem you might want to solve, and then they build out and use the maths when you, uh, when you need it. So for example, our first problem set for, for your average teenager, uh, the question is, am I normal? Can maths help me figure out if I'm normal? Big general question, right? And maybe it can't, maybe it can. What does normal mean? Uh, does that mean I'm weird in just one way or weird in two ways and less, you know, <laughs> you know, what does it mean? So that's a typical fuzzy question you want to stop. So I think we need to expose teachers to more of those sorts of questions, get them really asking the question, why are they teaching this? And it is, it is in a way quite shocking to realize if you ask most math, and I don't blame the teachers for this, I think this is part of the edifice of the curriculum and the ecosystem we're in. But if you ask most, you know, if you take most, let's say, English teachers, and you say, you, you, you ask the question, do they use any of the things they're teaching a 15-year-old? I would say the answer is quite a few. I mean, they may not use the detailed narratives they're teaching, but they use how to phrase things. They write stuff every day. They write reports. They do stuff in their own life. If you ask most maths teachers, do you use anything you actually teach a 15-year-old in your daily lives? Uh, the answer is probably not really. Well, that's telling us something. If that's a mainstream subject, that's telling us something. And I think that's so we've got to help them understand how they would use not only what they're teaching, but what they might teach in the future. And I think that will fold back into what they're able to teach today. Um, I just want one more thing I want to do want to say. You mentioned science as well, as well as maths earlier. I think there's a, uh, while I think there are problems across the curriculum, I do think maths is particularly disjoint from the real world. As in, I think the things you're learning in physics potentially, and particularly as you go to biology, are actually quite a lot closer to what you need. They could be a lot better in all sorts of ways. They could be a lot better if you could inject you know, computation into them. But I don't think they've become quite as disjoint as mathematics itself as a subject. Fair enough. You've got me one on pretty much all of that at this stage, Conrad. And, and back in my past, there's a history of teaching classics, but I haven't done that for nearly 30 years now. And the, the whole journey of my organisation began when, we, when I was listening to Boris Johnson giving a speech in 2011 when he rode in on his Boris bike when he was the, the, the mayor of London at that point. And he was talking about how important it was for everyone's character that they did Latin. And as far as I could work out as a former Latin teacher, the only real point was it taught you resilience because you, know, you, you just had to endure something that pretty much had almost no relevance around that. 
you're talking about teenagers and real world problems. This, this question it, it comes from one of our listeners, Richard Smith, who wrote to us recently and said, can you make sure that you talk to everybody about the primary school years, the elementary school years? Yeah. How young do you need to start doing maths or computation differently? At what point yeah, do, it's a great do, do we construct different building blocks? Because I get it for 15-year-olds. Yeah. What about nine-year-olds, eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds? So here's what I, what I say about this. I think the theory that I'm espousing as what needs to change is true all the way through, right from dot. But I think the divergence with the current curriculum and the real world is much worse from late primary onwards. I don't know the exact age, but let's call it seven, eight, nine years old. By the time you're solving equations by hand or doing long division by hand, things are diverging pretty badly. When you're in the very early years and you're learning, you know, what does multiplying mean? That's useful. I think it's useful, you know, I mean, people ask me, should you learn your times tables? My attitude to times tables is, you know, they're no great edifice. It's not like learning, you know, <laughs> 10 times nine is 90 is really, you know, very inspiring, but it's quite useful. I use timetables in my head to estimate things. You know, it's not the most important thing though is you know what multiplication means and when you'd use it. That's the crucial question. And so I think a lot of the early years stuff in maths is, is okay. I mean, it's like, you know, could we improve it? Could we do some machine learning for five-year-olds? I think so. Um, could we do some calculus for five-year-olds? Actually, I think so too. But are we doing things that fundamentally they need? Yes, I think there's a little bit of muddling up of mechanics of how you do it with what you do, but on the whole, not too bad. I think it's late primary into secondary where we're, and by the way, two things to point out about that point stage. That's a stage where I think we're losing a huge number of students. Yeah. It's, it's, it's late primary, early secondary. They're saying, oh my God, maths is such a panic. I can't do maths. I don't know what I'm doing. And there's good reason for that because it becomes abstract and disconnected from their real lives. Um, I think the, the second thing to say is, again, look back at what teachers actually, who are teaching this, actually do with it in their real lives. If you look at what we all learn in early primary, I think we can say we use that you know, pretty much daily. You know, we add things up, we, we, we go and figure out how much our shopping bill is, all those sorts of things we do and teachers do. When you look at, you know, when was the last, I love, the question I love asking politicians, when was the last time you solved the quadratic equation, right? Which we all learn in our school. And the answer is, uh, well, if they're quick off the mark, they say, uh, to help my kids. <laughs> but that's the basic answer you have. Nobody solves these things anymore. If you're a professional engineer, your equation probably won't be quadratic. It'll be something much different and you'll use a computer to solve it. You'll set it up. You need to know how to set it up. You need to know when you'd use an equation. But most of the general public haven't got the foggiest idea of when they'd use a quadratic equation because that's not the bit they learned. They learned the solving of it. They didn't learn when they'd use it. So that again is what's gone off track. And I think we could get that purpose into primary better, into early primary better than we do of some of those tools that we've got. The other thing I would say, one final thing on early primary, um, I think this four-step problem-solving process I mentioned, let's get that in early before you really need it. So you know when you get a question, you know, I've got five friends and I've got 
you know, 10 sweets, candy, and I want to hand them out to the, you know, how many should we give each friend? And I always have a joke, you know, it's, it's like, well, it depends whether they're all good friends. Should you, in fact, is it, is it fair to give them evenly? Good question. Anyway, that's a definitional question, but whatever. Let's assume we're giving them out evenly. Uh, well, 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 you'd be teaching them politics as well as mathematics then, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, well, they're all connected, right? So, Really, that's a four-step process we're going through. Now, you don't need the four steps at that stage. You could just say it's a division sum, you know, uh, you know, 10 divided by five equals two. But actually what you're doing is you're defining the question as we just did. Uh, what's the question? Is it even or is it not? Then you're abstracting it to a division sum. Then you're actually doing the division, step three, and then you're interpreting the result. Was it reasonable? Did I get the right answer? And if I had nine suites, what does that mean? Can I divide a suite in, you know, correctly, et cetera? So let's get kids very early learning. And the reason for getting them into that early is because when they get a hard problem, they need to fall back on the process. And so if they've already under, if they've got it dealt with when they're doing easy problems where they don't really need it, then they'll be much more confident when they come into uh, solving a hard problem. And this is true in all walks of life, right? If you're flying an airplane, you know, you do lots of training for what happens when things go wrong. You go through a checklist. You have a process. It's If you're in the military, you have a process you follow when you're under a lot of stress. And that's how you get through situations. Same in maths. We need to do the same kind of process and make sure that's sort of in there as an automatic thing so that you don't get frightened off when the problem gets a little harder. You know, in my experience, it's predominantly only been in secondary education, Conrad, and often when young people come to the schools that I have been in, there are two types of kids that come in in relation to maths. There are those who are connected and engaged, and there's a substantial amount of proportion that are not. And when I speak to the ones that are not, it's because somewhere along the line, in those kind of formative early years, that primary area, the junior school, and I'm not having a crack at the junior schools, please don't send us all messages. I'm just citing uh, some facts that are presented to me by, by these students, and that is, they have lost confidence in their capacity to get a question right because they're being taught there's either a right answer or a wrong answer. And it's quite dehumanizing and, and demoralizing and impacting on their self-esteem. And, and so what then happens, of course, is their commitment is lost. Yeah. And that's a little bit what you're talking about. That's why I love the idea of bringing it in earlier. Uh, you, you wouldn't be aware of this, but in the Victorian curriculum here in, in Australia, uh, they have obviously a number of strands to mathematics and a number of substrands. One of the strands they have to mathematics is numbers and algebra. And then there is a substrand of money and financial maths. What we're starting to see here is a strong movement around enterprise thinking and entrepreneurial skills being more and more incorporated into mainstream curriculum which is very exciting. And that's not, just, that's not just inclusive to maths, that's across the whole board. So this notion of uh, providing the, uh, uh, a problem and, and allowing them to navigate through that particular area. And of course, what it's highlighting is that our financial literacy component of our mathematics really needs attention because it's, it's kind of purpose fit, isn't it, for that area. Yeah. And so there are some schools that are being really creative and they're combining their kind of business economics with that money financial maths substrand so that there is a real practical application straight away that can resonate with a young person and then they can see the inherent value of, of those formulas that they're developing.
I mean, that's great. And that's exactly what should be happening. I mean, the to, several things to say. I mean, firstly, by the way, Victoria has definitely been way ahead of many others. And I know we've actually worked a lot. I mean, you know, is it is it the extreme change I'd like to see? No, not nowhere close yet. But I think there's certainly Victoria is way ahead of the pack in figuring out. Um, and I know the VCAA and things have been pushing many modern things ahead of, of many other groups around the world. Um, the just to come back to your confidence thing, confidence is so vital. I mean, one of the problems we had in thinking about was maths and, and all these other things um, is that you, you think that outcomes that you want to achieve from education in general, let alone maths, are well established. But actually, they're really not. And, you know, you get these weird outcomes trees of what you want. And, and so we set up a new, you can go and load it on our website, computerbasedmath.org slash outcomes. It's our proposed new list of outcomes. And one of them is confidence to tackle new problems. It's a tree of possible sub things to help you build your confidence. If you don't have confidence, you can't do lots of things. And I think what you're talking about with the entrepreneurship is great. It's, it's in a sense, projects that match real world, which allow you to then use all your skills. It might be skills of linguistics. They might be knowing the history of what's happened. They might be computational skills. And so we need to be able to embed those computational skills. Now, the, the, like in all subjects, and I think particularly in math or computation, one of the problems is in order to know how to embed those skills, you've got to know something about what's available and how you can use them. And that's where the base kind of core computational subject that I'm talking about comes in because you've, and, and you can attack this from different angles, but in the end, you've got to know that machine learning exists and where you might use it. You've got to know that, you know, you can use data science to do this sort of problem. Otherwise, you can't apply it to your entrepreneurship. And so, and again, financial mathematics, I mean, there are sort of fairly basic things like how interest rates work. An example problem set we have, which is pretty hard actually, is should I insure my laptop computer? Uh, that's one of our modules. Well, it's kind of complicated. When do you buy insurance and when don't you buy insurance? That's the details of insurance. What's the, uh, what's the excess as we'd call it and what's the premium? So there's a certain amount of, of, I mean, there's again, part of what you need to learn. There's a certain amount of notation and, and terminology that one gets to know for each area, for financial math, for other math. But there's also these questions. So, you know, when you buy insurance, it's very complicated. I mean, it's bizarre, right? Because the more money you have relative to the cost of what you're buying, the less you actually need insurance, but the more likely it is you'll spend money on insurance because you want a lower risk profile. I mean, so it's, it's complicated how these things work. And insurance is kind of the opposite of lottery because what you're doing is you're putting a whole bunch of money together so somebody can get a payout when they've lost stuff. Whereas the lottery, you're putting a whole bunch of money together so somebody can get a payout when they haven't lost anything, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the mathematics of those two is actually quite similar, but the outcomes are really different. So there are lots of things connected with that that, that can be complex and, and simple. So I totally uh, love the sort of constructionist approach, as it's called often in education, of having projects. I think the only little extra I'd add to that is you need to have some instructional pre you know setup which can be done in a very project or problem centric way in order that you know what's available for your constructionist projects yes and i think i think i think the notion of understanding that there's a time and a place for every type of pedagogy including direct instruction is very very important conrad i'm 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 still chuckling to myself over the notion that long division is divergence um and i think we might have just found a, a title for for this episode um I think one of the areas that Adriano and I would, would feel that many progressive educators around the world would also think is divergence is assessment. 
um, that when you are assessing or testing um, students that the test itself is the proof of the pudding and it's it's acquired for itself a weighting well out of proportion and that and assessment which should be assessment for learning and assessment of learning it becomes a thing in and of itself you mentioned earlier that um, confidence to tackle new problems is one thing that we should be assessing so it's maths maths loves testing and assessing what are some more of the things that we should be assessing because I, I think the solution to your query about maths curriculum will come down to what it is we choose to assess. Yeah, quite. Assessment, I mean, it's, a, it's interesting because assessment drives curricula uh, and therefore it drives what teachers tend to be forced to teach. And therefore, as you correctly say, that locks a lot of things. So I, I talk about the ecosystem of education being locked and the linchpin is assessment. Uh, it's kind of what we've got. Um, look, uh, there's several parts of this. What, one of the problems is that you need assessment, which is more open-ended. So in the old thing you might have in history, you might have essays, right? That you, um, you know, we, we need things in maths that are open-ended questions. Uh, for example, here's data from a website, you know, or let's say, data from two versions of a website, which is performing better? Well, it's complicated. I mean, it depends what you mean by better. What were you trying to achieve with the website, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So most modern computation questions are of that sort. They're not yes or no answers. They're not right or wrong. So when you do assessment, I think one thing we can change is we can be more like some of the arts assessments where it's less right or wrong it's more longer answers. It's things which has more variability, more open-endedness in it. So that's 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 a, that's a real sacred cow you, you're looking at there, Conrad. I know. And one of the problems with maths is that, you know, and the point is, if you ask the assessment authorities, do they know how to do that kind of assessment? Not not for maths, but for other subjects. They say yes. Basically, it's a bit more expensive, but they know how to do it. It's not impossible to do. They have schemas that allow much more. Maybe it's not what we'd like exactly. Maybe it doesn't open things up as much as, as we'd like, but it, it does. So you asked also what other areas of things might we want to assess. I mean, actually, our outcomes list that I mentioned has, has a good sort of set of headings. But I think um, another one of them is managing computations. I mean, I'm just going to pick a few of these, uh, uh, you know, what I mean by that is this, you know, it's like, um, let's say you'll see you become the CEO of a thousand person company and you read the management book on how to manage a company. You know, it's funny because the two don't match exactly. It's kind of like the world doesn't quite work like it said in the book. And maths is the same as that, right? You can read the maths book, but when you, even if it's a good maths book, which is kind of more like the real world, it just doesn't quite work that way. So what you need is experience of what goes wrong. You know, the computer ran to infinity, the program crashed, you know. So what you need is to try lots of those things. So essentially you need a simulation of real problems and trying to run them in a real setup. You know, if you're working with team members, how do you interact with them? How do you get the right, I have this every day. I work with technical people. They tell me something. Did I understand what they told me? Maybe, maybe not. Have I got the right bank of questions to ask them to know whether I think we've got to the nub of the problem? Those are all really important skills. And I think those can be built into even our current assessment frameworks with a little bit of ingenuity, some of those, in a reasonable way. We don't have to change the whole, I mean, look, in the, in the end, Many educators, many enlightened educators, and I think correctly say, you know, the whole way in which we think about assessment is kind of old fashioned and we could do a much better job in all sorts of ways, right? I, I don't disagree with them, but 
we, we are where we are in the world. That's a very big thing to change. My argument is, while I'm trying to be very radical with a subject, I think we can be actually not that radical with the way in which we assess in mathematics. It takes on board some of the things from other subjects in style and make more open-ended questions that assess some of these other kinds of outcomes. Now, obviously, a big issue is, do you have a computer with you when you're doing the examination? Even without a computer, I think there are things you can do, but clearly, pretty soon, we need to have computers with people, because otherwise they can't do the kinds of problems they're going to be doing in the outside world. So that is a thing that we need to change pretty radically for assessment. Conrad, it's really interesting uh, listening to your response just then to Phil's question around basically metrics and measurement. And my takeaway from, from here listening to you is, as a visual arts teacher, that we get it right and we should be the mainstream and that perhaps math should be an elective. That's what I'm hearing you uh, say very clearly there, Conrad. Oh, that's outrageous. Well, maybe that's maybe outrageous in assessment style, here, but not necessarily in content only. But yeah, I think arts is a mainstream thing actually anyway. But, but I, I would say that I do think that the way that assessment's done often is, is yeah, is, and, and you get the whole richness of the whole set of outcomes that you're trying to look for by doing the assessment that way. You're not into these pigeonholes. I mean, just one more thing to say on the assessment um, as a... You know, one of the problems we have in the world uh, is quantification has, in some cases, assumed an importance beyond its ability to judge. So what do I mean by that? Take, well, take hospitals, very much in the news at the moment. You know, it's become the thing, certainly in the UK, and I'm sure you have some aspects of this in Australia as well, you know, it's kind of like, hey, uh, my hospital has 10 metrics that tell me whether it's a good hospital. And, you know, if we hit those 10 metrics, then suddenly it's a good hospital. So that's uh, happy. Now, unless you've got pretty hopeless management of your hospital, they're going to make sure that you hit the 10 metrics. The 10 metrics may not be what the outcome was you were trying to achieve because they were too simplistic. But numbers have this power to, this power over us that qualitative uh, judgments don't have. And so through society, we have this problem that we have simplistic metrics as opposed to perhaps what we would have had 30, 40, 50 years ago, which is, hey, this is a pretty good hospital because it's treating patients well. Uh, now we have 10 metrics. And that's a problem. And that's a problem in education. Because what we're really doing is we've got too few metrics for the complexity of the measurement. So when you say I got an A grade in my maths exam, whatever it is, uh, that's not actually telling us that, you know, it's telling us that you took a two hour exam after two years of study or whatever it was and you got an A grade. But that's not really telling you about the richness of where that person, you know, is that person good at very quick assimilation of a problem, but not so good at very deep research, yeah. which is, you know, or, or is it the other way around? And, different jobs have different requirements. So we need, my argument is if you're going to have, I mean, this is a longer term plan. If you're going to have quantification in different areas of life, and I don't think we should reverse out of quantification. I'm, I'm a math guy, right? But I think that you need more metrics. You need agile metrics. You need far more numbers associated, not fewer. So then you get a more rich thing. And then you get different people look at it. If you want to apply to university A as opposed to job B, then you're finding that, you know, University A wanted a different set of characteristics of you than job B. That's fine. That's life. You don't, it's not like, well, did you get an A grade or did you get a B grade? It's a richer quantification of that situation. That's where we eventually need to go, I think. 
Conrad, we're, we're going to wrap this uh, conversation up really soon. And I've got one more question for you before our dynamic uh, learning that has been going on today. And my takeaway, of course, is that maths should be using rubrics to measure uh, uh, growth and achievement on, on, on a, some type of continuum. That's what I'm going to be taking away, Conrad. Uh, but my question to you is, is this one. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about your up and coming book, The Maths Fix, which I believe will be out in June sometime? That's the plan. Yes. For, um, so all the things we've been talking about, literally pretty much everything is some way covered in what I'm trying to do with the maths fix. So I've subtitled it an education blueprint for the AI age. And what I'm trying to do is really it's got three parts. I'm saying, what's the problem? Some of which we've discussed today. What's the fix that I'm proposing? I don't you know, many education books talk just about, you know, we've got all these problems in schools, got all these other problems. You know, this is all wrong. So they don't really give a blueprint to, you know, how might we think about fixing this? So uh, that's part two of this is what's the fix? What is the math I'm proposing? What are the outcomes? How does that work? How should it be structured, et cetera, et cetera, in some detail. And then part three is some ideas about how we roll this out societally. You know, what, what is it we need to change about how education systems work, the politics of it a little bit, and um, what I want to enter a new age of enlightenment, really. And what I'm hoping the book is, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's not a light read, <laughs> um, but and some bits of it, particularly part two, where I'm going into you know, details of what we want to change are, are a little heavy for some. But what I'm hoping is it will really appeal to parents who are very, you know, who are engaged in intellectually what we should do about education, certainly teachers, and of course, policymakers uh, very much. I want to put this in front of policymakers to make sure that they really think hard about what, what it is they're trying to do as we enter the AI age. And I hope that it's, I mean, certainly from everything I've seen, I think it's the first mapping out of a fundamental shift to what the mathematics subject should be. Conrad, that notion of a fundamental shift is, is absolutely the right point for us uh, to end on. There are so many thousands and thousands and thousands of, of wonderful teachers out there who are taking their students through the journey of mathematics. And as the discipline of mathematics and as the craft of the teaching of mathematics looks at the world today and the volume, the pace, the intensity of change that's going on, it's entirely appropriate that as a profession, we're engaging with that conversation about what the shift is, where it should be, and how we can take our students on that journey and prepare them for a life of thriving where computation is real, it's authentic, and it's inserted into the warp and weft of everyday life. Your book, The Maths Fix, um, I'm looking forward to reading it. There's also a website, isn't there, which is themathsfix.org. Have I got that right? Correct. And, you know, and, right now you can, you can get a better summary than I just gave you of what's there. And uh, um, soon, you know, I think you'll be able to pre-order or, or order it shortly. Tremendous. Thank you so much today, Conrad. It's been an absolute education. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And we look forward to a continuing conversation. Thanks very much indeed. It's been good to talk. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.